You're listening to Out Here, a podcast about what it's like to build a life, a community, and relationships at the end of the road in Alaska. I'm Erin McKinstry. If you haven't listened to the intro yet, I'd highly recommend it. You'll be a bit lost without it, and it won't take too long, I promise. Okay, here goes. The freedom of being out here is really what it comes down to, I mean. There's this edge about living out here that you have to be careful of. We take care of each other out here. It's nice. It's kind of like living on the moon. You know, like you're in our own little community out here. Like there's no one else to help us. It's just us. We all got to get along. Or, yeah. I mean, out here, you have a more direct relationship with your survival needs. I feel out here is just a lot of mini failures. One thing I've learned about living out here is I can't just talk myself out of being afraid. I have to face a fear, work through it, and then it's behind me. We're out here for the lifestyle. We're out here to try and find some quiet. We're out here to challenge ourselves. We're out here, some people, to hide from the world. On episode one, Heading North, we'll start at the beginning, like so many stories do. The stories of how and why people made their way to this pretty improbable place. First, a bit of background. McCarthy and Kennecott sit in a valley carved by a glacier and surrounded by three mountain ranges, including the Wrangles. They're smack dab in the middle of the country's largest national park. It's bigger than Switzerland, and the mountains are taller, too. The park is full of superlatives. It has the biggest concentration of glaciers in North America. The mountains make the Rockies, and even the Cascades look like pipsqueaks. The landscape here is really new, in geological terms anyway. The Atna people started moving around the area as ice retreated, and it remained sparsely populated until white people found something that could make them money. Copper. And boy, did it inspire. They built bunkhouses on top of mountains, built roads to places you can only fly to nowadays, built an epic railroad that the climate continued to eat away at. They had to have some way to ship copper south. Words like resiliency and triumph often pop up in the place's narrative. But I sometimes feel feverish greed and borderline insanity might be more appropriate. Depends on how you look at it, I guess. It's funny because we like to think of time as always moving forward, but this place had its heyday back in the 20s. There was a school, refrigeration, and a whole lot of debauchery, at least in McCarthy. At one point, there were 11 places to get a drink and no churches in sight. As history tells us, with boom comes bust, and by 1938, they weren't making money, and everybody left in a hurry, too. They left their mugs on hooks, coats on hangers, pool tables on mountains. You feel the term ghost town here to this day. And for a lot of people, the history ended there. But not for Gary Green. In 1973, he was two years out of high school and searching for loneliness. We'll hear his story and two others on this episode of Out Here, Heading North. There was no road to McCarthy then. It was just the old town and three couples living here. When I arrived, I became number seven. 
every road around the McCarthy area was just a two-wheel mark road with flowers growing down the center, wildflowers and stuff. Gary wears cowboy hats and flies bush planes. He says he's lived in McCarthy longer than anyone else at this point. When he was younger, he lived on a farm in Kansas. I used to take my baths in a round galvanized tub just the same way as my son has. I guess I'm not very progressive, really. Then his dad moved them north to Alaska. They lived in Anchorage, but Gary dreamed of someplace more remote. When I was uh, growing up and watching TV as a kid, I mean, all that was on in the, those days was Westerns. I loved Westerns, and I loved uh, the West. I've never been attracted to where it was busy and lots and lots of people. I was attracted to wild, lonely places. I decided to take the summer off to go gold prospecting. And uh, I was always intrigued by the Wrangell Mountains, just the wild aspect of, of the Wrangells. So, so I ended up in McCarthy. In addition to copper, people also found gold out here. They still mine for it, actually. There's a place called Dan Creek where one guy has a ton of heavy equipment he hauls over when the river's frozen. Nowadays, it looks like a regular commercial mining site in the middle of the wilderness. It's pretty weird. In the summer, you can only fly there. So when something breaks, it stays. But that was after Gary's time. He did things simply. A shovel, a pick, a pan, just like the movies. He moved out in the winter, hauling his supplies by snow machine across an old bridge across the Nizena River, nine miles outside of McCarthy. And I didn't come back until May when uh, breakup was just about over. Everywhere I went prospecting had mining activity, old cabins, ghost towns, and they'd only been abandoned for 30-some years at that point, which means they were still in pretty good shape. The first three years I was here, I lived at the uh, mining town of Chittatu, which was another ghost town, and it was my own town. I was the only, only resident. If he got lonely, he'd make the half-a-day's walk to McCarthy, crossing back over the now crumbling bridge. It was a roller coaster and twisting sideways the approaches to it, but it was still crossable on foot. When those sections actually washed out within the first couple of years, the main structure crossing the main channels was still intact, so you could wade smaller channels and then climb the caissons so you didn't have the, the danger of fording a deep river. I got my first airplane mostly so I could cross the Nazina River because the bridge did eventually wash out, and that was the most dangerous thing I did in this country was wading big rivers. and. I survived it, but I figured if you, if you do this year after year, eventually you'll just wash away. I took to flying pretty well, and it's, it's opened up the world. Now just rather than the local area being mine, I had the whole ankles. After his third summer gold prospecting, he decided to build his own cabin in McCarthy and spend the winter. It was, it was nice. I had my kerosene lamp because I would wake up quite early in the mornings. I know I, I don't know what time it was. And I could read by the stove until it turned daylight. And by daylight time, I was ready to charge off and do things. And, and I would be outdoors running around till, till dark. And then back at the cabin. And uh, I think it was a full-time job just existing and uh, with the running around, getting firewood and hauling water. And 
He'd found his home. When I first came out here, I only planned to take a summer off and go gold prospecting. And the life absolutely agreed with me more than I ever imagined it would. And I just never left. Um, there's more adventure out here. Uh, every day is your own if you're not punching the clock, going to work on a schedule every day. This is God's country. I can look out my window right as we speak, and this is what I drink my coffee to every single morning. And when I go outdoors from my cabin here, I can, I can pee in the yard, I can shoot a gun, I can go snowshoeing, skiing, snowmobiling, or go climb in my airplane and fly away without dealing with uh, traffic. And everybody makes their own level of noise, but there's just not that many of us yet making so much noise. And when I step outside, it's mostly quiet. And it's something I, I appreciate. For a picture of the view out Gary's window, check out the episode notes. It's pretty epic. But Gary's isolation was not permanent. By the mid-70s, the state had turned the old railroad track that led to McCarthy into a road against the wishes of some of the residents. The slow churn of progress started calling a place that had long been abandoned. It was a mixed feelings on, on the road at that time. Some of the old-timers wanted it. They wanted easier access. I was new and young, and I loved living in the wilderness, and the road was counter to that. But it's, uh, I, I liken it to trying to hold back the tide. It's hard to do. Gary said the Sierra Club tried to stop it. People like Gary tried to stop it, but they built it anyway. There was no economic base out here that needed the road at that time. But it just was progress. Progress took its time, though. The rough road deterred most tourists and newcomers. The McCarthy Road was called the worst road in Alaska. It was prone to mudslides and washouts. Water ran over the road and froze, forming something we call road glaciers. Don't worry, we still have them today. And it used to be the glaciers would get really thick and people would get stuck in them. And if they did, there would be no one to help you out. And your vehicle could be frozen for the entire winter and actually get engulfed in the ice. Uh, you just sometimes didn't make it, or if you did, it might be a 13-hour drive from Chitna to McCarthy. It was just... Full of challenges. People still came to find solitude and adventure. Most people got around using a dog team instead of a snow machine, like Carol and Daniel Morrison. Next up, we'll hear their story of how they ended up here. It's a story that might make you believe in fate, or at least letting things happen. It starts in 1979. My name is Carol Morrison, and I live at 41.5 mile on McCarthy Road between Chitna 
and McCarthy in Alaska. I came up here from Colorado to see what Alaska was like. Uh, my husband at the time was not my husband, but we were together and we had our truck all camp styled and hit the road in October uh, 1979. Jennifer slept in the front seat, she was eight, and then Adam was four, so he fit in the floorboard on a really thick foam pad. He had the best bed of all. <laughs> Carrie was a baby and she slept with us in the back in our sleeping bags. So it was compact, but it was adequate and comfortable for everyone. Daniel, Carol, and the three little ones had taken off from northern Colorado in search of money and remoteness. What Daniel was making as a carpenter there wasn't cutting it, and they had a friend in Idaho who worked in real estate. But when they showed up, she wasn't there. So Daniel thought, why not keep going? And Carol said, why not? And so he's like, you know, I was looking at those Alaska magazines, and I was thinking we could just run up and check it out, you know, before we settle down for the winter. And uh, I said, sure, sounds good to me. I've always been a, I don't mind camping out at all, you know, out of a truck or cooking outside or sleeping in a sleeping bag. They headed north in October, but as the warmth and light waned, they realized they would need to find a place to stay beyond their camper, and Daniel needed a job. So they started caretaking for someone's cabin and getting sled dogs. Everyone had sled dogs in those days. There was mushers everywhere. Daniel got a job. Things were working out. But they were still only an hour outside of Alaska's biggest city. Daniel itched for something more remote, for the real Alaskan wilderness, Never mind they had three kids. Never mind they didn't know anyone out there. They were in search of something simple. I guess we just learned that we could live without a lot of things that's tied to city living. When we were moving, we sold everything we had so we didn't have to mess with anything except carpentry tools and his climbing gear. And the kids had a little suitcase. And then I just bought clothes for them at other garage sales and rummage sales in cities as I passed through them. I didn't have a whole bunch of stuff packed. I just lived day by day. And after a while, you sort of get used to that and go, I don't need all that stuff. And then one day it came when Carol and Daniel's dog jumped out of the back of their pickup into somebody's yard. Daniel went over to get the dog from the couple who'd found him, and they got to talking, started doing some work on their house. A friend of the couple came passing through, and they got to talking. Someone out there in the bush needed a caretaker, he said. Someone along the McCarthy Road, a guy who'd been living on his own, who was heating his cabin with whatever he could cut down by hand, and the guy wanted out. It was cold out there, 40 below. It was lonely, too. Daniel said, yes. The next thing Carol knew, a woman was at her door. The lady came into my cabin and said, get in the car. 
we're going shopping, you're moving to the bush. And I was, what? <laughs> and so I did, and we bought some groceries, and Daniel and I, the next day or so, we drove over to Chitna. The kids and the dogs stayed behind temporarily, and Daniel and Carol drove east, turning the highway for the worst road in Alaska. There was no firewood, it was cold, and there was no one around. They loved it. It was really, really, really cold, you know, 40 below or something. Oh, we didn't have thermometers that <laughs> read that good, but it was just beautiful everywhere. It just snowed. It was gorgeous. He lived on a lake. He said, yes, you can have my cabin for free for the winter, and you can watch it for me. You can bring your dogs. and So, uh, you know, that's all it took for me to see that beautiful scenery and even though it was cold I was already prepared for that. Daniel left for the kids and the dogs after a week. They used their dog team to cut firewood around the lake. By May they owned land. By October they built a tiny windowless shed to live in. By the following winter they had a new baby. Carol didn't have maternity clothes for winter so she didn't go outside much. Later they had another baby. Both born at home, both delivered with just Daniel there to help. One thing followed the next to where you can't deny that, you know, uh, this is the place for us. <laughs> and we've been here since then, 38 years. There were harsh winters, leaky roofs, five kids in a tiny space to drive them a bit crazy. But it was still extraordinary. I learned so much about my own resources. And if you run out of something you'll think of something else. If you don't run out of it, you never will. If you don't have something to cook with, and you just say, okay, well, what else is there? And then you'll say, well, maybe I could do this. The more you use your resources, the more you have. And it's kind of fun to live like that. Finally, let's hear a story that brings us closer to the present. By the time this story starts, tourism had started to increase in the McCarthy area. There was also talk of putting in a bridge across the river that divided town from the rest of the world so people could walk or drive across instead of having to pull themselves with a hand tram. And the old-timers were starting to fade into a new generation, a generation of mountaineers and adventurers. Not to say that the old-timers weren't adventurous, and a few of them were mountaineers, but... These folks had more of a traveling bug, coming in and out, working seasonally, living a seasonal lifestyle, drawn to the dangerous beauty of the Ringles. The story is also a love story. It's the story of Greg Runyon and Kristen Link. Greg's a mountaineer and carpenter, and Kristen's an artist and a scientific illustrator. We'll start with Greg.
I came to Alaska in 94 with a buddy. We just uh, decided to drive up here and see the state for the summer. And we ended up staying. We never left. Ended up spending the winter in Girdwood, which is a ski town outside Anchorage. I had a 67 Palomino pop-up camper, like an old camper. Backed that into the woods, put a blue tarp over it, put a Mr. Heater in it, and lived in that for the winter. Stevie and I did. And um, seminal winter in my life changed my entire existence. And that spring, he and I and our friend Kobe came out to McCarthy uh, and flew in and tried to climb Mount Blackburn, which is the highest peak here in the valley. And um, I'd never climbed a mountain in my life, never done any of that stuff. Neither had they really, but we tried. For the record, Mount Blackburn is 16,391 feet tall, taller than any mountain in the continental United States. It's glaciated and technical and not usually someone's first pick to start climbing mountains. So we drove, I had a 72 Volkswagen van. We drove that down the McCarthy Road, got stuck to the front windshield in a mud glacier because it was like end of April. Got it out. Some people came and helped us. I think it must have been the Morrisons. I don't know. I didn't know anybody back then. Got to the end of the road. There was a tram, an aerial hand tram across the Kennecott. Kelly Bay flew us in and dropped us on the Nebesna Glacier for three weeks. We did not summit Blackburn. We got up to about 12,000 feet and were smart enough to turn around and go down. Um, I never put crampons on in my life or knew how to tie into a rope. My friends would tie me into the front of the rope because I was the biggest guy. With the theory that if I found a crevasse, they'd pull me out, which is not the way to do it. The plane Kelly flew us in, a Cessna 185, could only take two people out in the first flight with gear. So it was probably like an hour and a half. I was there by myself on the Bezna Glacier with my little kit, my little stove, made myself some coffee and stuff. And just remember feeling this really inner peace and being in this big glaciated wilderness. And um, yeah, it really drew me in. I'd met these great people in Girdwood. They're all coming to McCarthy to work in the summers. I followed the hippies to McCarthy, and that was a good, good call. Always follow the hippies, they know where to go. I wanted the freedom to buy land and build a place without any constraints. I wanted to do it raw, raw land, raw building. Um, I didn't have much money, and McCarthy was working out. I liked the people here, I had a little bit of work here. The land was semi-affordable, so I bought 10 acres on the south side of McCarthy Creek and cleared it by hand and built a 14 by 16 log cabin there with some of my buddies. And it was working out pretty good out here. And yeah, then I met Kristen. Then we stepped up a lot. Enter Kristen. Kristen and Greg met while climbing Denali, the tallest peak in North America. Altitude sickness, weather, avalanches, all of it can keep even the most experienced climbers from summiting. But at 22, and without much mountaineering experience, Kristen summited. She'd come up to Alaska in the fall after graduating college. She wanted to experience a winter. She ended up getting a job as a dog handler in a town called Willow. She spent all winter, staring at the Alaska Range and its clean Denali, staring back at her. So she decided to climb it. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this thing and then I'm going to leave. That was my plan. I was going to go back to Vermont, where my parents live now. And one of my guides on that trip was Greg. Kristen shows up for the climb and it's like, right on. You're, you know, you've obviously been around. You have a lot of skills. You're very confident. You're very quiet. And you just kind of have this inner peace. I was just focused on climbing the mountain or whatever, but we, I think we were the only people who like 
seriously drank coffee on that trip, so. I have this rule as a guide where you can't talk to me till I've made coffee for myself. I'll bring you coffee in bed. I'd love to bring it to you. Tea, hot chocolate, you tell me what it is. I'll bring it to you in your tent. I'll give it to you anytime. But if I go in and start the stoves, don't come in and talk to me and ask me the questions I answered last night. Like, where are we going? What time are we leaving? What are we doing? I'm like, look, I need to drink my coffee. Kristen would come in, she would sit there, not say a word. And I'd pour the water in mine, look at her, and she just had her mug, so I'd give her a little water. And eventually we got this little routine down where, you know, I knew she was going to come in and it was fine. We just shared coffee together and it was really nice. I remember holding her head as she was puking off the back door from altitude illness at 17,200 feet at 30 below zero. Didn't sleep at all that night, but then she got up the next morning and summited with the summit team. So I was like, that's a lot of fortitude to be up all night puking and get up and fire the summit at Denali like that. That's no easy feat. I don't care what anyone says. It's hard. After the climb, they spent a few days together, and that was it. It was time to go. She was supposed to start graduate school, go to her sister's graduation, get on with her life. But Alaska had a different plan. My friend Molly and I, I tried to leave. My car ended up exploding. I remember, like, standing there with my car broken down and, like, not knowing, you know, what was going on. But I was like, this is a sign that I shouldn't leave Alaska. I should go back. And the rest is history. She did get that degree and go to her sister's graduation, but nowadays she and Greg live in a house they built themselves outside of McCarthy. Kristen works as an artist and teacher, traveling around the state and the country when she's not at home making things. You have a lot of flexibility as far as like what your lifestyle is like and how expensive your lifestyle is. Um, I can afford to do my artwork, which is really valuable to me right now. You have a lot of like personal space and ability to you know, decide what you want to do each day. So yeah, I think kind of like that freedom and flexibility is what I love about it. You've been listening to Out Here, a podcast about life at the end of the road or at least along the McCarthy Road in Alaska. On the next episode, we'll hear about what it's like to build a house and a life in the middle of the woods. Everybody's always worried, how am I going to build this house? I don't know how to build a house. And you're like, of course you don't know how to build a house. Thanks to Galen Huckins and Blue Dot Sessions for the music and to the one and only Ian Giori for artwork. To my University of Missouri Master's Committee members for their support, Scott Swafford, Sarah Shariari, and Dr. Christina Mislan, and to the Duffy Fund for the money to buy this audio equipment. If it weren't for them, my voice would sound a lot scratchier. If you like what you heard, please, please, please share with friends or family. It helps me reach some new listeners. You can find all the episodes at www.outherepodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. For Out Here, I'm Erin McKinstry. All right. I'm going to go chop some wood. <laughs>